0: Hi, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keller McFall from Newman University, and I'm host of the show. And I haven't haven't posted a podcast for probably two months because I've been on the road uh, taking students to Europe and going to conferences, but I'm excited to be back. Uh, And I'm particularly excited to be back to talk about a very interesting book uh, titled Jasinovich Concentration Camp, An Unfinished Past. Uh, edited by Andriana Bencic-Kuznar, Daniela Lusic, and Stipe Odak. And just by hearing me pronounce those names, you are going to recognize that my Croatian is non-existent. so I will apologize in advance both to Stipe and to our listeners when I mispronounce something. Um, But it's well worth hearing the mispronunciations because this is a really interesting and important book. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to Stipe with, about it, uh, and I'll let him explain why it's so important. So I'll just say, Stipe, thanks for joining us, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies.
1: Thank you for having me, Kelly. It's uh, wonderful to be here.
0: So I start out by asking uh, guests to talk a li- tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, and in our case, since your co-editors are not with us, uh, Stipe, if you could introduce yourself to us and then say a little bit about your co-editors.
1: Sure. So my name is Tipe Uh My background is a little bit specific. I studied theology and religious studies and then sociology and comparative literature in Zagreb, and then later went on uh, to finish a PhD in political and social sciences. Coincidentally, two our co-editors, so that will be Daniela Lucic and Andriana uh, Kuznar, Benčić Kuznar, were my colleagues. So we studied uh, sociology together in Zagreb and then continued to work together. And we came in touch with the subject of Jasenovac towards the end of our master studies. So that was uh, Andriana and me at the time. We were invited by the director of Yasenovac Memorial site at that time to uh, do some research basically at the museum. And the issue was uh, quite peculiar. So the the people who were visiting sometimes demanded to see more horrors. Mm -hmm. They thought that the museum does not represent the history in a truthful way, and that they would prefer to see more weapons, images of massacred bodies, um, uh, uniforms, war uniforms, and so on and so on, which was uh, strange in view of new developments in museological representation, but it was also uh, 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 ethically problematic, and we'll speak probably about this later, in view of uh, particular history of Yasenovats, where The museological representations were used as a part of propaganda during the war in the former Yugoslavia. So this was the first time we came in touch with uh, the subject in a professional way. Of course, this was before uh, taught in uh, history classes and uh, even some uh, university classes that we attended. And then we continued on, and the subjects changed over time. So at some point, we also collaborated with uh, people from uh, other uh, museological sites in Europe in imagining uh, how the museological representation of uh, the Holocaust uh, should develop in the future, especially at that time, the development of augmented reality uh, was quite in vogue. And that again also became relevant to Yeshenowitz uh, because the site, the original site, was bombed in uh, March and April um, forty-five, and then even later, people so in, from surrounding villages used the the remnants of the site for as a construction. Construction material for the houses. So there was almost nothing left, which creates a strange sensation among the people that the site is too beautiful Mm. for what it represents. And uh, one of the possibilities uh, or suggestions that some of the visitors uh, were giving was to reconstruct. The, the places of torture which again opens many ethical questions so we wanted to avoid that and uh, one the, w- one of the ways that we could imagine um, going forward was to use this augmented theology uh, technology excuse me to represent what the site looked like at the time while at the same time reminding visitors that there's a difference uh, now and uh, Also, there was an educational point that we wanted to send, stating that the last phase of um, genocidal ideology is not the genocide itself, but covering the traces of genocide, which was quite visible uh, in the case of Yasinowitz. So that was the original uh, situation. And then later we faced uh, some additional problems. And one of them was a new wave of revisionism surrounding uh, the Asenovat site. And uh, also under quotation birth of new research institutions uh, which were uh, publishing uh, quasi-academic works on both sides. So one side was uh, exaggerating uh, the uh, the situation of Yasenovats. again, this should be a qualified statement because it's very difficult to exaggerate the side of si- uh, such terror, but what I mean by that is that they were using um, the data uh, from uh, Yugoslav, late, especially late Yugoslav period, uh, which was a part, really, of uh, propaganda during the war. So there was one side, and another side, partially as a reaction, uh, was minimizing the the horrors of genocide. Yes the inspiration behind the book was to bring together scholars from different countries, different fields, but scholars with a reputation who would really. Consist on uh, data-driven research, empirically grounded research, which can present uh, truthfully uh, the, the story and of, of, history of Yesenowicz, and which can help in a way to bring uh, different perspectives together, but which can also serve as a repository of data, which people can use in response to uh, revisionist tendencies that they face. Uh, so that's that's the the story of a book, and we are happy really that it's been
0: published now. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Ascendance, but most are not. So, can you talk a little bit about what this site was and what role it played in the Second World War?
1: Sure. So, first, maybe I should geographically, <laughs> place Yesenovac. You know, um, so at that time, it was the biggest concentration camp uh, in so-called independent state of Croatia. So now we are speaking about the period from 41 to 45, of course, the period for the Second World War. And the independent state of Croatia was an allied state with uh, Germany and Italy. So, the famous um, Croatian historian, Ivo Goldstein, used these uh, terms under quotation marks, uh, stating that it was neither independent, neither Croatian, since it was in nature uh, not really independent, so it really depended a lot on Italy and uh, uh, and, uh, Germany. And uh, it was not, again, uh, entirely Croatian, because, of course, it was not a democratically elected uh, government. So it comprised the territory of currently Republic of Croatia, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, parts of what is today Republic of Serbia, minus uh, the Istria, that's a region in Croatia, and some parts of Croatian coastline, which were then given... To, to italy so so here there this is the geographic space so jasenovats was not the oldest uh concentration camp uh, in this country but it was certainly the biggest and later it became a symbol uh, used for all concentration camps in uh, this uh, large territory. And this sometimes creates confusion, because sometimes people would speak about Yasenovic's victims, but under that name, they would uh, uh, include all the victims of all concentration camps on this territory. Right? So that's why it was an e- extremely powerful sim- uh, symbol. It will become clear why in a minute. So also, uh, it was uh, It was not a single uh geographical spot in reality it was it, it comprises five uh sites so first two were operating really in a relatively short period from august to november uh, 1941 and then uh, the the people who survived were then sent to uh camp number three Called brickwork, which is generally associated with the, the, the name Yasenovats. and then there was also a tannery and uh, another site uh, placed in what is currently Republic Bosnia and Herzegovina in Stara So there was this complex set of camps, which were all called Jasenovac uh, concentration. Which role it played? Uh, so very early. After uh, their founding, uh, the, the leaders of independent state of Croatia introduced uh, racial laws uh, based uh, on the racial laws, of course, in Germany, which targeted specifically Jewish and Roma population, all non Aryans, but practically Jewish, Roman, Sinti population um, uh, in, in, the, in these territories. And aside from that, uh, Serbs uh, were not considered uh, uh, non Aryan uh, race. They were not considered directly targeted by, by these um, laws. They were Slavs, but not neither Jews nor Romans, so they were then seen mostly as political enemy within. Uh, And then, uh, many of them, the majority of victims in uh, Yesenovic concentration camps, were of Serbian ethnicity. So those three groups were systematically targeted, and aside from them, there were other enemies who were seen as, again, political enemies, those were Croats in opposition. Also, significant uh, number of victims were of this ethnicity. There were also uh, some uh, smaller ethnicities who lived in these territories, but were also seen as a target. For instance, some who belonged to religious minorities. It's important to note that the camp was not controlled by Germans, uh, as some other camps in the in Europe were even outside the German territory. This was under local control. And another difference uh, to uh, concentration camps in Germany was the way it was organized. So it was not just a concentration camp. It was also a labor camp and extermination camp. And uh, Natasha Matausich, one of the people who contributed to this book, described it in comparison to German industrial machinery of killing, using that metaphor, as a manufacture of uh, all evils. It was truly a horrific uh, place, uh, full of uh, sadistic stories uh, and and really torturous uh, killings on a daily basis. The number of victims of Yesenowicz concentration camp, as we might discuss later, was always uh, a, a matter of debate. But uh, the Yesenowicz memorial site institution uh, that is now organized on the place of the spot of the former concentration camp did an important research project uh, in and, uh Currently, they have a list of all victims' names, which is uh, eighty-three thousand one hundred forty-five, I believe. Uh, which is not complete list, but that's the starting point. And the generally uh, ac- serious academic approximations go so between this lowest number of eighty-three thousand to one hundred or one hundred then 120,000 of victims, mostly converging around 90,000, 100,000 victims. So already enormous number in itself. So Yasenovac concentration camp later during the Yugoslav period uh, of the communist government, symbol in a way of national unity why was this important? Uh, because U- Yugoslav government at that time uh, was inspired by this ideology of uh, brother- brotherhood and unity. So the idea was to avoid the repetition of these, uh, they called it uh, fratricidal crimes, international crimes, uh, between the ethnicities who were culturally Close, speaking well, basically the same language, sharing the same mentality, and starting from the suffering, they wanted to build something common, something together. So, in that sense, it was uh, strongly discouraged or even impossible to speak about the crimes of one ethnicity over another. So, the the. Wicked for Yugoslav people and the enemy for fascists and their collaborators. So this was the official denomination uh, and this was somehow manifested also in organization of the museum. So the symbol, architectural symbol of the site became a stone flower which is enormous concrete building by Bogdan Bogdanovich. And and it is really a stone flower. Uh, It it symbolizes something that has roots deep down in ground, in suffering, in blood, in terror. But it's open towards uh, the sky, towards a new future. So the orientation was was really towards future. So starting from this deep suffering towards some building better, uh, well, in that time, communist future. Later on, in uh, uh, late '80s, so especially after '87, the narrative changed significantly. So one wizard uh, from. Uh, uh, Academy of Sciences and from Belgrade was organized in eighty seven, and the decision was brought to uh, change the organization of the museum and uh, represent it more as as a site of deepest uh, atrocities. So there was the time when these real horrific. Uh, Authentic uh, horrific images of massacred bodies, uh, movies, uh, and all the rest was presented in the museum. Uh, uh, Usually all the children from uh, these territories of Yugoslavia at some point were obliged to visit this as a part of school visit. And also a mobile exhibition was organized titled The Death Are Opening the Eyes of the Living, which was especially uh, visiting... The, the military barracks and then this became a huge issue later uh during a war because uh, some people testified that they saw this suffering and mind you at the time the narrative changed significantly the suffering was not the suffering of Yugoslav people or all ethnicities it was in the in the in the eyes of the propagandists the serbian suffering and the Perpetrators were then Croats. So the people who saw the exhibition would say, I saw what happened and I reacted preemptively to stop another genocide. So the muse- museum and the museological exhibition itself was used for propaganda purposes. And then it was a fueling different crimes during a period uh, from 1991 to 95. Then... Also during the war, the museum was under occupation of Yugoslav National Army, it was pillaged, and uh, all, all the property, all the books, all the exhibition was moved to Banja Luka. It was only later uh, brought back uh, to Croatia, and then it was finally decided that the different form of exhibition, permanent exhibition, should be organized. And in 2005, the, the work started. And the new exhibition focuses on the victims uh the 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 project wanted to uh show that the victims are not just a number those were people with specific histories specific personalities uh who lived again in in their communities so the idea was to give them, give back the voice to the victims. So it's really focusing on that uh, historical context, of course. Uh, there's also part which represents the resistance in the camp. Uh, we have uh, truly fascinating stories sometimes, uh, for instance, of women who, who wrote a, a cookbook of recipes while they were imprisoned there. And this is... Uh, uh, Astonishing in the way the book was written uh, during a period of starvation and they saw it uh, as a form of resistance. So the women would get together and uh, think about recipes. Mind you, the paper is not readily available in a camp; It needs to be stolen. And again, if if you're caught uh, writing this, you would be immediately executed. Uh, so this was seen as a form of resistance, but also keeping the heritage because the recipes used to be transmitted from uh, mother to daughter and so on and so on, especially in older societies. So th- there was some form of importance of guarding that tradition. So they, they would write the cookbook together. Then uh, there were souvenirs, for instance, one uh, male inmate uh, made a ring for his friend, Uh, both of them were working, forced to work, and the ring was of course uh, hidden. Inside the ring uh, there's an inscription, this also will pass one day. So There were those elements of hope, uh, strange hope in face of nothingness, uh, resistance, and then again uh, inmates try to resist uh, the, the the impression so in you know, 45 uh, the, the the camp was that way also liberated. So the focus was a lot like this and then much less on on truly the weapons on destruction there's a small part of exhibition which shows them but this is not certainly not in in the focus. So this new exhibition was partially well accepted and then again partially, uh, criticized uh, by some people who saw it as a postmodernist attempt to uh, negate the horrors of the history, uh, or by some as revisionist attempts. Uh, the one part, of course, of the project was to find a name of all victims by names. So again, to Uh, The the book was published with all the names of all victims that could be found. Of course, not all the names uh, could be found, but those that could uh, were written in a book. And the book came, as I mentioned before, with uh, a little bit more above uh, 83,000 names, which was much less than official uh, propaganda in Yugoslavia, which was partially developed uh, in attempt to reinforce the sense of suffering, and again, the the, the, the enormous evil that happened during this period, which can be a source of inspiration for future generations, and partially uh, as a way of uh, asking uh, monetary uh, reparation from uh, Germany, so, some listeners probably know in '46 uh, there was a conference in Paris organized around the question of reparation, and Yugoslavia, uh, at that time, said that the victims of uh, in in this territory of Yugoslavia amounted to 1.7 million, and this number we later discovered uh, was uh, uh, the estimation by uh, Vlada who was working at the, this DISC office. And he made an estimation of demographic loss losses, so which are different from real victim losses. So why they're different? Because there he included also the decline in birth rates. Uh, so all everything that contributed uh, to, to um, kind of less population that one would expect, including people who were killed, but not only people who were killed, right? in practice this is an important number to know because people for instance who leave the country or uh, people who couldn't have children are, are also an important element in social life of course we need to know this but these were not meant to be the the the, the actual victims killed uh, on these territories nonetheless the number was used during this conference later became um quoted in an encyclopedia's official publication in Yugoslavia. And another thing that was important uh, as, as, as a symbol was uh, 700,000 victims of Jasenovac. Mm-hmm. This almost became a sacrosanct number, which simply symbolized this enormous suffering, which we know now is not factually uh, through, So when the last exhibition of Yasenovac, uh, permanent exhibition of Yasenovac was made, uh, with this number which is much less than this one used before, some people also saw it as a revisionist attempt and then now we are here today when all these things are just presented i know they can be very confusing to hear all this because this is really specific site in this respect which has not only the original history of of terror but also the history of collective memory around it a history of propaganda around it an additional traumatic history of the uh, ex-Yugoslav wars, which were linked to previous uh, wars.
0: That's a wonderful summary of of the history of the, the camp, but also of the, the ways in which the memory of the camp has been used. In, you, you talked a lot about numbering. Um, your book divides this into three parts, naming, numbering, and narrating. Um, I wonder if you could say something about the naming part. What are the how how have people described this? I'm I'm particularly struck by descriptions of this as something more than genocide. So, so how have they described what happened at Jasenovac and and around it? Um, and what are the stakes with that?
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe to make one step back, yeah. you know, to to explain just. This- the division of, of the book Yeah, please in, uh, describing, uh, naming and counting so we uh, started with the premise that genocide in itself is a crime which escapes understanding to some degree and especially it escapes representation It's 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 linked to this idea of radical evil which simply cannot in full at least, be properly represented. So people usually develop strategies of representing uh, those horrible events. One strategy is doing historical research, right? That's what most of us do. But there are also different strategies uh, around us. So one of them is giving a name to a crime. So genocide, of course, uh, is an important term uh, that was developed to describe these unimaginable events. Uh, for a long time, the, the Holocaust and all these atrocities that happened during World War War, World War II were seen as a crime without name. So there was a necessity to create a name for this deep suffering. Linked to this is the history of yasenovac which was a site of uh, genocidal execution. But then uh, there, there were also attempts to represent this history as something even beyond that. Sometimes it's used also for political purposes. So you mentioned, for instance, the at the time president of uh, Republika Srpska. Again, maybe a little point of clarification the Republika Srpska is not the same. Uh, thing as Republic of Serbia Republic of serbska is a federal entity of Bosnia of state of Bosnia and Herzegovina right so one part is Republic of serbska another part is Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina which is again might be a misnomer because the Federation is on the lower level than the state and the third part is bochko district so Republic of serbska uh is a place where this uh, one part of former concentration camp is currently placed. And it's the, the the events, memorial events are organized every year, which is fine, all fine in itself. It becomes problematic when this history of uh, suffering is used for uh, political purposes, of today. So Želka uh, wanted to say that Jasenovac, as a place of Serbian suffering, was not a genocide, but something even more than a genocide that exceeds all other forms of suffering. It's so unimaginable. Uh, and then this is linked to the idea that the only protector against the new suffering is the Republic of Srpska. And this, again, was the idea Uh, proposed on numerous occasions by another important politician from Republic of Srpska, Milorad Dodik. At the same time, very often, this uh, enormous, truly enormous suffering of Serbian population and uh, other ethnicities as well during World War II, in Republic of Srpska especially, is used as a way of not speaking about crimes, especially Genocide in Srebrenica that happened in 1995. So this strategy of naming was was uh, in a way political strategy to, to to convey the idea that the current political institutions are the main protectors of Serbian people in this territory and they have legitimacy to speak. Uh, 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 about suffering because so many people suffered and they suffered something even more than a genocide. On the other hand, among the revisionists, there was attempts and there are ongoing attempts to represent the events surrounding Yasenovac, not as genocide, but as as simply reasonable political decisions. Uh, against uh, enemies of the uh, of the state at that time Uh, some of them even uh, go to the length of stating that the uh, the site was not even the place of execution it was to the to a degree a place where they could organize uh, movie nights um, sports and recreation so place of relatively comfortable living. So this attempt of avoiding at all costs the, the name genocide is also an attempt to whitewash the history. So that's the naming part and, and struggles around us. And the our listeners will certainly know and understand that there's always this attempt to appropriate the word genocide and sometimes... Or most frequently the word Holocaust for, for other forms of suffering but in an attempt to say yeah we also have a legitimacy to speak uh, about pain, about collective trauma so so naming then the second strategy of representing this enormous um, event uh, is uh, of course through, through numbers if the suffering is be, escapes understanding. Then perhaps we can put a number on it. We might come closer to to some form of proper representation. So that's that's also another reason why the numbers were were so important in this context. And uh, we also mentioned the number seven hundred thousand. It's already a number which is easy to remember. Unlike, for instance. 83,145, so it became a symbolic number in a way. uh, For some people, it did not represent exact number of victims, but it just represent the symbol of enormous suffering, which simply couldn't be touched. Uh, the, the, The number became less a number itself, mathematical instrument. It simply became a cognitive instrument, a cognitive symbol, right? And then on another hand, of course, on the revisionist side, we see strong attempts to minimize the numbers of people who suffered there. And then they would go uh, to the length of saying, oh, just maybe 2,000 people were suffering. Of course, both of these strategies are problematic from historical point of view, but they're also problematic from social, uh, in in a way, political point of view, because they create mistrust. And once, when all this suffering uh, and the, the numbers became symbolic, it becomes almost impossible to debate the symbols. Because negotiating symbols and touching the symbols is already seen as an insult. So that's why the naming uh, is also something that we definitely wanted to talk about. And then the third strategy of uh, representing uh, genocidal crimes is through descriptions. So usually the strategies here um, revolve around attempts to represent the most atrocious uh, forms of pathological tortures that one can imagine, right? Some of them were historically accurate, and some of them, which are also linked to the history of Jasenovac, we, we now, histor- historians really have a consensus around this, were not accurate. And one, again, very famous story was uh, this sad story about making soap from human remains, which is said to be done in uh, this uh, territory of Stara Gradishka, for which we don't really have historical evidence. But the attempt here is to come up with something memorable, something which shocks people, something which creates emotional reaction also as a way of representing something which escapes understanding in itself. And as I mentioned before, revisionist attempts go in a completely other direction. Oh no, this camp was not really the place of suffering. Yeah, it was a labor camp, it was imprisonment, but relatively comfortable one. So, let us describe you what happened there. There was this uh, movie uh, presented there. There was a visit of Red Cross, uh, which uh, saw relatively comfortable conditions at that time, and so on and so on. So the description of, of the events uh, surrounding Yachasenovac and that happening in is also a, a battlefield uh, of, of arguments and, well, not, not just arguments, I must say, also arguments under quotation marks, because some of these are clearly not historically based statements. So finally, we decided to organize the book uh, in, in those three sections, uh, which deal with those three strategies of speaking uh, about the crimes that took place uh, between 41 and 45 in uh, these locations
0: there's a name that that plays a role in the book that you haven't mentioned this. And I believe that's Blyborg, I believe, um, if I've got that right. Um, what, how have people tried to, so what is that? What does it represent anyway? What does it stand in for and how have people tried to use that as a narrative strategy for, um, in order to, um, cement kinds of identities or stories that they tell about the past.
1: hmm So Blyborg, uh, in itself, uh, is a geographical location, is, uh, is simply a city in Austria. But it's actually a symbol for a set of events uh, related to May 45, which make the whole story about World War II in the, these territories of ex Yugoslavia extremely complicated to comprehend. So at the end of the war, the army together, uh, with mi- uh, some uh, militia groups from, from different territories, so some from Bosnia-Herzegovina, some from uh, Serbia, some from Slovenia, uh, some from Montenegro, withdrew also together with a, a part of civilian population to this city called Bleiburg, which is at the territory of the uh, uh, Republic of Austria nowadays. And they surrendered uh, eventually to allied forces. The winning side on the territory of Yugoslavia were uh, partisans under the leadership of, of Tito, which then became uh, Yugoslav uh, army. So what happened later is that uh, British uh, um, leadership decided to repatriate all these people back to the country itself and then uh give them basically uh as prisoners to yugoslav army so that's the generally the framework historical framework of events so what happened later were in a part revenge killings uh and then massacres over uh, uh, not only former army members, but also civilians. So I just spoke before about the history of uh, Yasenovats and somehow the numbers of people who killed there. So Blyborg uh, was another enormous suffering which stretches from these initial events of surrender all up to uh the 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 time when many of these people came home so the this created another controversy why because during the period of communist Yugoslavia it was practically impossible to speak about these events because those included the crimes of the regime so until very late basically until the fall of Yugoslavia these events survived almost exclusively in collective memory. There were some publications about these events in immigration, but it was simply impossible to have books about them written uh, and published in in, in Yugoslavia. So why is this important? Because to to a certain degree, there there were no research being done, serious research being done for quite a long period of time. And second thing, this was neuralgic point for many people so now when we when the research about Leiburg started to be developed later after the independence the numbers were also controversial so nowadays most researchers converge around the numbers between 7 around 70 80000 of people who died or some approximations grow from 50 to 60, so the numbers are not very clear. And the majority of victims in this case were of Croatian ethnicity this time. So why is this important? At one point when Jasenovac became appropriated as the place of almost exclusively or predominantly place of Serbian suffering, the was developed as another symbolic place of creation suffering, and then it was shrouded also in religious language, so the Blyborg is also known in Croatian language as a way of the cross, so the, these, these events were seen as a way of the cross, so from surrender, uh, torture, until some of them came home and many of them died. So this is the setting that we have. And then those two symbols of suffering were sometimes used, uh, again, also in non-academic literature, as a way of contradicting each other. So people would say, oh, you see, the Yasenovac was not first minimizing the suffering of Yasenovats, Yasenovac was not such a big form of suffering, whereas Plyburg was and both sides were guilty of these enormous crimes, which again they would say the genocide took place in both cases. Depending which publications you're reading, so that's one event. And then on another side, there also attempts to say, yeah, yeah, but these crimes and these forms of suffering are not exactly the same forms of suffering, because one form of suffering took place. Uh, uh, during a regime which introduced racial laws and implemented them during four years. And another form of suffering, in this case Blyburg was a mixture of revenge killings, so linked to the suffering of Yasenovac, and then some chaos in the army that was not well organized, especially after the war. So even nowadays, those two toponyms represent two sets of different narratives, uh, two sets of different emotions and, uh, unfortunately, also competitive victimhood. So one of the goals of the book, Ken, and uh, 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 Vladimir Geiger and uh, Athena Grahek wrote a great article about this, was finally to shed some empirical lights on these events and uh, we somehow tried to 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 help people to converge uh, around some form of approximation first how many victims took place but also about timeline of events and why uh, causality of events why some of these events took place so that's basically, in a nutshell, uh, the history of Bleyburg, which is far more complex than what I just said now, but it, it really represents something important in collective memory to a degree that very often even nowadays in comments of the, the random articles that you will uh, see in publications in these regions, you will often see these competitions between Yasenovats, Bleyburg, uh, what happened, uh, when, who suffered more, and so on and so on.
0: So, as 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 I mentioned at the, at the beginning, this is a region about which many people, certainly in the United States, but I think globally, um, don't know very much. And one in which 30 years, well, not quite 30 years ago, but 25 years ago, was much more visible in the public consciousness, and I think it has receded so i guess my first question about this is is why do you think that what happened in the balkans during the second world war is so much less understood than what happened in poland or ukraine or belarus or wherever Why? um and what can and then along with that what can we learn from events and the memory of events in the Balkans that will help us better understand how to wrestle with these issues historically and and politically?
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's several reasons. One, and probably a very important one, is, is the sheer complexity of, of these events. So what you have here uh, are ethnically quite diverse, territories which later became uh six independent states uh, uh, after the fall of uh, Yugoslavia and then uh the territories themselves were just Difficult to, to understand what happened, when, how, and for what reason. So that that's one. Second thing is the that the events intersected and uh, went in different directions. So somehow you couldn't make a simple narrative uh, out, out of this. As I just mentioned, Plymouth tragedy was also enormous tragedy, but was committed at that time. By the state forces at the end of the war so after they did this surrender so it's somehow difficult to to create a simple narrative and timeline of events second thing is also the just the number of uh, forces who were fighting on these territories so and alliances so you did have state forces but then you also had militias some supporters of the royal army who were uh, quite fighting the regime but were also adhering to fascist ideology of a different kind or supremacist ideology so all this is i I understand it's very confusing second reason i believe is that the events that took place in 1990s, the beginning of 1990s, uh, the war and dissolution of Yugoslavia were an enormous shock for political analysts, uh, geostrategists uh, and so on and so on. And they took place after a long time. So when we already thought, oh, but we learned the history. We learned the lesson of, of suffering. Uh, we taught so much about the crimes of the Second World War. So it, it was somehow difficult to imagine they would, the new crimes were, were, would occur again. And then yet you did have the wars in Yugoslavia. And then you had 1994, obviously, Rwandan genocide which were a wake-up call, uh, I believe, globally. And then the media coverage focused mostly on these events in 1990s, whereas it it would be the the former crimes were forgotten, but they were intrinsically linked to, to the later crimes, especially in this segment of collective memory, right? And finally, maybe a reason the, the last reason that comes to my mind now would simply be the the, the change of 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 the focus. So this region of southeastern Europe and the Balkans was for a while under the spotlight and then later simply different regions uh, became uh, the the hotspot of of interest. So not so much uh, is being uh, published uh, about this region anymore here and there. Yes, but it's certainly not uh, the center of the interest. I believe because the conviction is that these events are not so relevant anymore. They're not so urgent. They do not require uh, immediate reaction or immediate attention. And uh, as a reply to that, I, I would really say that these these stories that I just presented could truly offer an extremely valuable and important lesson. Because one, they were so complex, and this complexity makes them even more relevant Because again, the very issue of memory and suffering and trauma and remembrance of events, it's quite complex in itself. And it's It's tempting to understand historical events in simple oppositions between uh, the the victims and perpetrators. Whereas in many situations, the story goes in many different directions. It's difficult to represent. It's constantly asking us for for new new attention, new articulation. So that's important lesson to learn. And second thing, it's also to see how, one memory of suffering which was meant to be a unifying memory can become reappropriated in different ways and uh, in the in the worst case scenario it can also be a ground of fuel for new crimes and this requires constant uh, ethical attention
0: so, so this is a wonderful book, um, and it seems to me to represent a kind of strategy of truth-telling. Maybe not truth-telling, but accuracy-telling. I'm not sure that phrase works very well in English, but an attempt to lay out a very carefully, to use a European kind of framing, scientifically artic- uh, a determined and articulated view of what happened. Um, what that that is an element of a strategy so so maybe i maybe i should reframe the question like this as as historians social scientists theologians interested in um in trying to ensure that history doesn't become a weapon what kind of how do we do that this is one element of a strategy but how do we try and work to prevent history from being misused in a way that creates more violence rather than less
1: this is a very good question and th- there's truth in this um that, that you just said about truth telling no pun intended again <laughs> the that that truth uh can have different meanings and it's accurate to say that uh, truth uh, can have different forms. Uh, and uh, as we remember for famous South African case, they could be forensic truths, they could be a narrative truth, they can be a social truth, a community truth, but restorative truth. There are many ways of phrasing the truth, right? And uh, I, I I understand that. But at the same time, and this might sound uh, extremely uh, empirical, maybe, if if that's a proper word, we did uh, believe that we need to have a a very um, dedicated and transparent historical research based on hard historical evidence in order to help the discussion moving forward. Why? Because many forms of representing the past, and I mentioned some, do uh, represent something truthful to people. So even the number of 700,000, it's true in a sense that the tragedy was enormous, right? But if we represent truth in this way, this can easily um, contradict Uh, the other forms of truth. So other forms, especially of symbolic truth telling that different groups uh, develop around their tragedy. So we believe that starting from these, well, simple empirical work uh, around real uh, concrete uh, victims and victim names and numbers would be a way of bringing those diverging views closer together of course we are aware that we cannot expect that people will uh, all people will agree on all things that that's that will be utopian dream but at least to create a platform around which this discussion uh would 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 develop or would lead forward and we are happy to say that in this book, we had a collaboration of, on one side, two Croatian scholars, uh, writing about the victims of uh, Yesenovac and Bleybo. And on another side, uh, Dr. Zvetkovic, who's coming from uh, Serbia, who made independent research also about the victims of Yesenovac, which came close, quite close together. So we were kind of vindicated in this belief that this can help uh, in, in moving the discussion forward right so there was this ground belief belief that we had another thing was the simply the threat of revisionism if we simply uh, allow the history uh, to become a, a field of discourse so any form of discourse uh these can easily fall prey to revisionist narratives right? Because then they would simply spin uh, the the history in a certain way and say, well, this is our truth now. And if all truths are are placed on the same level, then there's really no way of adjudicating around them. And mind you, this is also ethically problematic. We quote at some point the statement of uh, Professor Moises, who says, inflating victims is extremely uh, problematic because symbolically you're killing more people. And negating victims is also extremely problematic. So you're not acknowledging them, right? And so both of them are simply the strategies we absolutely wanted to avoid, especially knowing that practically they can be employed for new crimes as a motivation, a partial motivation, clearly not clear causality is the place, but partial motivation for new crimes. So we did really start with this deep belief that we need to have this as a basis, insisting on what can be called forensic truth or well accuracy to some degree. Aside from that, we did allow space for uh, further discussion. So we do have contributions about movies, for instance, um, about Yasinovats, and many of them which represent represent the story of Yasinovats in different ways, as movies always do, right? Or museological representation. So even if you do agree on some, let's call it ground truths, this still does not tell you almost anything about the representation of these events, you see. So this representation is another form of speaking about history, which is which cannot be placed in concrete numbers or, or equations, right? So this was somehow the motivation behind this. And it's also answered the question, how do we avoid this? The, one of the core beliefs that we had was really trying to establish consensus and a broader and broader consensus about the accuracy of historical findings, that's one. And second thing that we constantly insist upon is related to presentation of the tragedies, that they always need to have this empathy element or the view of the other. As soon as the narrative become closed narrative, so self-centered narrative, this can easily become exclusivist view of of the suffering which is suffering just for me and for my community right which doesn't tell anybody else what to do so this is not to say uh, that uh, the the uh, the way for this universalization of every suffering without any specificities no no we are, what, what i'm trying to say goes along uh, uh, Rothberg's idea of multi-directional memory we uh, we need to start from something specific right if we start from universally suffering we cannot say anything about specific suffering if we start from specific sufferings and then make connections seeing the similarities and differences between them, we can also then eventually understand something about universal human condition, all the while being able to go back to specific suffering. And this is truly my conviction that this is the way to to move forward. And another element that really needs to be preserved, it must sound banal, but I think it's also humbleness humbleness about what we can uh, say and uh, do about history uh, so marie claire lafabre the french historian uses two terms they rhyme in french not so much in english is the choice of the past choix du passé and the weight of the past uh, the choice of the past is the strategy of selecting historical periods that we decide to talk about and to learn from them. On the other hand, it's also the weight of the past, because the, some events in the in the past are so uh, 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 waiting on our shoulders so much that even if we decide not to speak of them, they will still. Uh, uh, persist in collective memory and Blyburg perhaps is a good example the regime decided not to speak at these events but then they couldn't be erased the weight of the past was simply too large so way forward would be first to become aware of this that we're not really omnipotent when it comes to the past and speaking about the past to become aware of these differences and then with healthy degree of humbleness, trying to build something common, some platforms that can develop a future dialogue, that can inspire inspire future dialogue uh, among different participants and different subjects in different groups.
0: That's a really thoughtful answer. Thank you so much. Uh, We've reached the hour mark, so it's time to wrap up. So I always ask the same question to end, which is to say, can you suggest to our listeners a book or two or movie or something that was important to you while you were thinking about these issues that, I mean, it's July, we have a tiny bit of vacation left before the academic year starts, um, something we can read or watch before we have to go back to grading papers.
1: Sorry, there was another interruption.
0: Yep, I uh, can hear you.
1: Uh, you can hear me yeah well since this uh the the story you know, about the world war ii on this territory is so complex i could perhaps recommend two books they're both in english um which uh w- which are written in a quite accessible way and uh they 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 explain these complex histories um In in a kind of easy to understand way, still scholarly books. One is uh, "War and Revolution in Yugoslavia" written by Jozo Tomasevic, which is again a famous uh, publication. Another book is "The Holocaust in Croatia" by Ivo and uh, Slavko Goldstein. Uh, It is a bit unfortunate that the majority of publications are still published either first in creation or exclusively in creation so th- there's a significant uh, body of, uh, of scholarship of literature which is unfortunately still inaccessible but those two books can be a good starting point for for future reflection uh, and uh future exploration and further further reading
0: i will add them to my list sadly i've had a lot of plain time this summer and I will have more. So um, I always get strange looks from the people who are sitting next to me as I pull out my books. uh, But I will add to my education. We've been talking to Stipe Odak, uh, one of the co-editors of Yusenovits Concentration Camp and Unfinished Past. Stipe, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, And I know you're working on a project about Rwanda when you are done with that. I hope you'll join us on the show again to talk about that book.
1: It would be a great pleasure. Thank you, Kelly, for
0: having me.